Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. A new trade policy analysis published today by the Cato Institute finds that anti-dumping use has been on the decline in the United States and globally. In his new paper, All Quiet on the Anti-Dumping Front, Take a Closer Look, Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies Dan Eikenson explores the causes of this decline and whether anti-dumping reform is still necessary. Use of anti-dumping law in the United States has declined over the past few years. What's behind this trend? I see four major trends that explain the decline in anti-dumping use. First, the world economy is healthy. Anti-dumping use tends to be countercyclical. When the economy expands, anti-dumping use declines and vice versa. In 2001, when we had our recession, that was the most recent peak in anti-dumping initiations. Since then, we've seen a continuous decline. And in fact, in 2006, there have only been two initiations so far. The second reason is that the steel industry is healthier than it has ever been. Traditionally, the steel industry has brought the preponderance of anti-dumping actions. Since 1995, there have been 366 anti-dumping initiations in the United States, and 208 of those were filed by the steel industry. That's 58%. Since then, there have been very few anti-dumping initiations filed by the steel industry, and one of the reasons is that they're doing very, very well. There's been a structural realignment in the industry. The producers now have a lot of market power. There was a major consolidation that has gone on over the past couple of years that I think insulates the steel industry from the kind of injury it used to suffer in the past. So I think that the steel industry's health corresponds with the decline in anti-dumping use. Also, the world economy has expanded and new markets have developed. And this is important because the emergence of consumer and infrastructure demand in places like China and India and the former Soviet republics and other countries now gives producers in other countries alternatives to the U.S. market. It was once the case that producers around the world wanted to get into the U.S. market at all costs, even if that meant selling at lower prices to gain market share. Now they're much less likely to pursue that strategy because they have emerging demand in their regions, and they're likely to be able to do quite well just serving those markets. The fourth reason is really the march of globalization has raised the cost of bringing anti-dumping cases foreign direct investment has flourished, supply chains have gone international, and as a result, there's a higher likelihood that domestic companies that bring cases are going to ensnare a member of its supply chain in that case. A good example in the United States, there was a case on wooden bedroom furniture a few years ago, wooden bedroom furniture from China, and the domestic industry had difficulty winning support among American producers for the case because many of the producers had investments in the Chinese furniture industry or owned outright manufacturing facilities there. So I think that this march of globalization, the integration of supply chains, internationalization of supply chains, will raise the cost of bringing anti-dumping actions going forward. Does this mean that anti-dumping reform no longer need be a priority? No, I I think the anti-dumping law, and in particularly the way it is administered, is slanted heavily in favor of finding injurious dumping. Interest in bringing anti-dumping cases will certainly return when the economy hits its next downturn. That has been the case historically. Short of repeal of the anti-dumping law, which would be the best alternative, I mean, we already have trade laws on the books, such as the Section 201 Escape Clause or the Safeguard Law, that do a good enough job stifling imports. So it's important to maintain reform efforts to at least raise the threshold and to limit the capacity of anti-dumping to inflict collateral damage on perfectly legitimate trade. Unfortunately, outside of the Doha round, which has been shelved indefinitely, there aren't really any viable venues for reform. So it's a little disconcerting that these efforts are stalled presently, and I'm not exactly sure how they're going to be relaunched.
You say that use of anti-dumping measures tends to be counter-cyclical. Beyond an economic slowdown, does anything else point to a potential rise in anti-dumping cases? I think so. The anti-dumping law has enjoyed broad bipartisan support in Congress for many years, and recently there's been a spate of legislation designed to make the anti-dumping law more accessible to domestic users. Representative Phil English introduced legislation in May that would make it a lot easier for the International Trade Commission to find that an industry has been materially injured, basically lowers the statutory threshold. That legislation would also make it easier for the Commerce Department to calculate higher dumping margins. Efforts like that are underway, and it's possible that Congress would revise the anti-dumping law in a way that makes it more user-friendly to domestic industries. Are efforts to change the law and make it more user-friendly going to be successful? Like I said, there is broad bipartisan congressional support for a strong anti-dumping law. And by strong, I mean a law that thwarts imports without regard to whether those imports are actually dumped or without regard to whether they are even causing material injury to a domestic industry. If imports are merely a competitive nuisance to their constituents, then Congress has a political problem. The capacity to unleash the anti-dumping hammer helps members solve their political problems. So efforts to reform the law and limit the collateral damage it inflicts on otherwise unobjectionable trade are often viewed by Congress as hostile efforts to undermine their capacity to solve their own political problems. On the other hand, efforts to strengthen the law tend to be well-received if and as the economy slows and as domestic producers scapegoat imports for their woes, support for strengthening the law could grow. What about the Byrd Amendment? You mentioned in your paper that the Byrd Amendment was repealed. Doesn't that constitute a victory for reform efforts? Well, yes and no. The Byrd Amendment was a provision snuck into an agricultural appropriations bill back in 2000 by Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia. Byrd changed the way anti-dumping and countervailing duties collected by the Customs Service were handled. Before Byrd, those monies remained in the general treasury and were allocated for general purposes. But the Byrd Amendment required that all anti-dumping and countervailing duties collected be put into special accounts for distribution to the companies that supported the respective AD and CVD petitions. Of course, this created a bit of an ambulance-chasing environment, and petitioners began to view anti-dumping through new lenses. No longer was anti-dumping only a tool to thwart imports, but it was now also a direct revenue generator. Well, of course, Byrd was immediately challenged by 11 countries in the WTO, and the WTO ruled that Byrd's provisions contravened various U.S. WTO commitments. And after years of foot-dragging and refusing to repeal Byrd, Congress finally did so uh, late last year as part of a budget reconciliation bill. However, the Byrd provisions are still in effect until October 2000. But I think petitioners' experience with Byrd gave them a taste of how the law could be most beneficial to them, and that is by giving them subsidies in the form of direct cash infusions. And as Byrd is phasing out, a new model seems to be emerging to allow this cash infusion to continue. Petitioners and their lawyers are now approaching companies subject to anti-dumping measures and saying, we will abandon our efforts to have your anti-dumping rates raised if you give us cash. So this has happened most prominently in the anti-dumping case involving shrimp. In that case, hundreds of exporters from six countries are subject to anti-dumping duties. Many of them have concluded that they can live with the rates they've been assigned. They're, they're relatively low. So in other words, they're low enough so that they can continue exporting to the United States. Petitioners have approached most of these companies with a deal that many have accepted, and the deal is that petitioners will withdraw the requests of the Commerce Department to calculate new duty rates if the foreign companies pay them between 2 and 3% of the value of their U.S. sales. This is clearly extortion, and it seems highly unethical, but legal experts seem to believe it's not illegal. My concern is that the strategy will become commonplace and used as a marketing tool by lawyers to get domestic industries more interested in bringing anti-dumping cases 
That development, in conjunction with congressional efforts to make the law more user-friendly, points to a resurgence of anti-dumping activity down the road. The Free Trade Bulletin mentioned on this podcast is available at www.freetrade.org. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.